Session six, sustaining prayer through trials and tribulations. So if you want to get out your diagram. Diagram. So point A, in context of the coming kingdom, resurrection, and judgment, the church is a sojourning nation called to witness to all the other nations that Jesus is the Messiah, the one appointed judge of the living and the dead. And so in light of kind of sound instruction, the right hand of sound instruction, Jesus is going to return, execute the day of the Lord, give to each according to what they've done, raise the dead, give the righteous the kingdom. They're made righteous by the blood of the Lamb and persevering in, in, uh, with fear and trembling in light of the day of the Lord. And so in light of just the simple sound instruction, you get an identity of the church as a sojourning witness of the day of the Lord. Uh, which we've looked at. And just a note on, again, like we talked about last week in a discussion group, to press the idea of sojourning, I want to be strong on the anti-dominionism aspect because it's, you know, many years ago the Lord spoke to me and said, you, what did he say? He said, uh, your battle against dominionism will be far greater than your battle against evolutionism. And I, like at the time, I just equated dominionism with that far extreme application of dominion theology. When in reality, dominion theology is just perverted platonic theology of God's sovereignty. And it's, it's uh, rife throughout the church in, in different forms. It's just the, you know, what's labeled dominion theology is just, logical application of it in, uh, in uh, logical praxis of dominion theology. And so I want to be firm against it because it really does downplay the sovereignty and, uh, and uh, righteousness of God in ruling over creation. But there are also, like we talked about, some aspects that are good. For example, the seven mountains where there is the, you know, what, what uh, Cunningham and Bright, when they first came up with that, their main point in coming up with that is they're missionaries. They both lead missions movements. And so their point in the seven mountains or molders is that we need a witness to the whole earth and it has to happen through every area of life. And so uh, there is that aspect where the church, the church only witnesses to people. They witness to people and not the everyday aspects of everybody's life. And so, uh, the application of, of that, I think, is a, has been a skewed. So this is generally why I will more endorse, you know, the, 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 the people who preach and teach on salvation within Platonism, you know, that, that press on the escapism and getting to heaven, etc., because generally there's at least more of a sojourning identity it's sojourning metaphysically rather than chronologically but it's still you get a lot more of the love of god communicated and 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 uh, righteousness in the situation anyway so b god has given us a deposit of the holy spirit to aid in the witness of the kingdom the holy spirit from start to finish is accessed by prayer which god has ordained as the singular means of grace which we've worked through that and all other means of grace are only to bring us to a place of uh, righteousness and, uh, and, and uh, humility in prayer. See, the watchful lifestyle internally disciplines the heart in repentance and belief unto an asking of the Holy Spirit for right reasons. However, God has also deemed it fit to use trials and tribulations to externally discipline our hearts unto repentance and faith, which results in righteousness and maturity. And so this is kind of the bizarre, just the way it is in this age, that you can internally discipline your life day and night, but no man can produce humility and meekness by his own strength. It just doesn't work that way. And uh, God always chooses to use external discipline likewise to, uh, to clarify who we are and how we actually are in light of being sons of Adam. See, the uh, or I mean the scripture there, 
Hebrews 12, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? And so the idea of being a son of God in the scriptures, like Luke 20 says, they are, God, they are, they are children of God because they are children of the resurrection. And so the uh, Hebrews 10, 11, 12, the, the context of them is clearly second coming and the resurrection and our rejoicing in that and having faith in that and that that was the joy set before Jesus uh, right previous uh, to this. And so the point is, is that the author of our salvation and resurrection was made perfect through suffering. And likewise, uh, we're also made perfect unto our inheritance in the resurrection through suffering. And uh, so moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us. We respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the fathers, the father of our spirits and live in the resurrection? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as though... As they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Quoting Isaiah 35. Strengthen the, the uh, feeble arms and weak knees for the Lord comes with vengeance, etc., etc. The blind eyes will open. And so you get this idea that that God treats us as sons and keeps us on a narrow path, not only through Sermon on the Mount, fasting, prayer, giving the poor, not only through fasted way of life to keep us from falling into error, but He also keeps us and disciplines us to keep us on a narrow path by difficulty in life and hardship that happens in various different forms. And uh, like I was just talking to Tim Miller yesterday, and he was talking about, I mean, just the intensity of what his life is right now and, and the pain of it. And I said, I said, bro, you know the Lord is treating you as a son, and he's rejoicing over you in the middle of this, of what it's going to produce. He says, I know. He says, I know I'm not an illegitimate son but I just keep asking and said, telling my father, my bottom just really hurts right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just really hurts. So trials and tribulations have a twofold purpose. The, humi- the, the humiliation of humanity under repentance and the identification of the love of God in his long suffering. And so as we suffer it humiliates us, and we, we understand the love of God in the midst of suffering, as his son did. Trials and tribulations thus make us consider the severity and the kindness of God, that we might maintain a watchful lifestyle of prayer unto a faithful witness unto our inheritance in the kingdom. So Romans 11, this is his point when he's talking about Gentiles and Jews, and the Gentiles becoming arrogant uh, towards the Jews, and, uh, and how... Paul says that they didn't you, you never had any hope before and now God has been kind to you and Acts 11 he's allowed even the gentiles repentance unto life. I mean you were condemned into a lake of fire but because salvation came through the Jews and now you've been grafted into the resurrection I like why are you becoming arrogant towards your elder brothers and he says do not be conceited but fear keep in a place of righteous prayer for if God did not spare the natural branches he will not spare you either behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity but to you God's kindness if you continue in his kindness if you continue working out your salvation with fear and trembling Chad pointed out Revelation 1 3 Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written because the time is near or at hand, and then Revelation Revelation ends with verse 10, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, 
because the time is near at hand. Behold, I'm coming soon, my reward with me. I'll give it to everyone according to what he's done. And so you have uh, the time instead of the kingdom, but it's the same idea. Okay, so page two on uh, in session six. Nothing drives the human heart to repentance and prayer more than suffering and trials. Our frailty and weakness is revealed, and we seek God for strength and grace. Moreover, God has designed death and suffering to inherently drive humanity to a place of groping. And so when uh, in Acts 17, Paul on Mars Hill, he says, he who, uh, he who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is made from one blood. So he's referencing, he's just starting with creation all the way forward since he's amongst uh, mostly Gentiles who don't have any understanding of what their life really is about. And so he starts from the beginning, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth in the beginning. He made from one blood, referring to Adam, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, referring to uh, Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him. And so he lays out redemptive history, humbling them by first saying, Return to the dust, O sons of Adam. You're like grass that springs up and then withers. And then over and over you get this progressive humbling at the Tower of Babel. He breaks up empires. Even his own church he breaks up when it becomes a massive empire in the Reformation. And uh, and so he commands all now to repent everywhere. Second everywhere. Corinthians 1, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, the affliction we experienced in Asia... For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We even felt we received the sentence of death like Adam, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. On him we've set our hope. And so you get that uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's not particular to our lives. It's all of Adam's offspring are put under the discipline of, of suffering and even death itself. Page 3, trials and tribulations humiliate our delusions of control and self-reliance. When bad things happen to us, we are better positioned to abandon our attempts to run our lives and determine our own destinies. So, when I mean, from the garden forward, God says, return to the dust, for from it you're made. The whole purpose was to wake Adam and and Eve and their children up from the delusion that they're walking in. That they could not listen to the voice of their father and keep walking forward. And the Tower of Babel, in complete delusion, that we're going to set ourselves in the height of the heavens, ruling over the whole earth instead of God. And and rather than coming down like he ought to have, in my fallen opinion, and opening up a lake of fire and throwing them into it like the sons of Korah. I mean, it, you know, he humbly comes down and looks at them and sees what they're doing and then speaks and they all can't understand each other and they all disperse. <laughs> you know, I mean, just the kindness and humility to disperse man's empire building. I mean, because every man really is after the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil and the delusion that we walk in, every man's desire is to dominate and take over the entire earth and conform every man to our own image and perfection. Seriously. I mean, that's not like theological. It's, it's every man really does at the core of them wants to dominate every other man on the earth, not just their stuff. It's not just greed. It's not just that they want to have control over everybody's stuff and their property and everything else. Like, they want to dominate every other person, their being. It's called pride. They want to own and control every human being. I mean, it's just the way it's... it's uh, and once that ball starts rolling... 
it feeds on itself. And so once you do have more of everybody's stuff and you do control how people think, you want more control and more domination and more people to be like me. <laughs> it's, we're diabolical, literally. So Luke 18, Luke 18, this parable, I, I was reading it this morning when I was going over the notes, and I just hadn't read it in a while. And I, I looked at Luke 18, and I saw verse 9, and I went, what in the world? Verse 9? That's crazy, man. Because the end of Luke 17 is when he changes directions, and he says, then, and there's, there, then there was some, or he says, at some time, there were some Pharisees that came along and asked him, you know, is, are you going to do the kingdom of God? But, and I don't want to jump into this whole explanation of it, but his point, he, he's referencing Isaiah 65 in the kingdom of God, saying that there's, there's grapes that are righteous within the bad cluster. And he's saying that there's righteous people who will inherit the kingdom of God, but you're not of the good cluster. And then, and then he turns to his disciples saying, you are of the kingdom of God and you will inherit and, and I will come suddenly. And, uh, and then he gives a parable saying to keep them in righteousness and cleanness, saying, keep faith that I will come as it was in the days of Noah. And I will, God will answer the prayer of the righteous to come quickly, the day of the Lord come quickly. When the scoffers, those, those people don't really want the day of the Lord to come quickly. And uh, he gives the parable on the, on the widow who continues in faith. And then he says, he concludes the parable of the, uh, of the persistent widow because it's one flow of thought. Freaking mind-blowing. One flow of thought, he concludes the parable of the widow saying, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And then, clearly the time doesn't change. So in the same conversation with with the Pharisees here and his disciples here, he gives the Pharisees a little figurative language out of Isaiah 65 saying that you're not you're not uh, you're the spoiled grapes within the cluster he looks at his his disciples tells them that I am going to do the day of the lord suddenly and I'll destroy the wicked just like with noah just like with lot and here's a parable that you stay persistent in righteousness seeking the day of the lord and seeking the kingdom of god and and being found righteous therein and he says but on that day when I do come who can stand before the Son of Man when he comes? Will he find faith on the earth? Oh, and then he turns back to the Pharisees. And to some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus told them this parable concerning the righteous and the unrighteous and who will inherit the kingdom of God. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. This is so like... It's like watching the Gospel of John and he's in the temple and you just like, that's so intense, man. And so he looks over at the Pharisees and he tells them a parable about a Pharisee who goes up to the temple to pray. The place where God will come down and its glory will emanate to the whole earth. The Pharisee goes up and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, that I will be raised from the dead in the resurrection and I will stand with you. I might even have a room in the house of God here in the temple and sit on a throne with you on your throne, John 14. So God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Rather than the other, I mean, the intensity in light of when the Son of Man comes with lightning as he's from the west, he rains down fire from heaven like Sodom and Gomorrah on the wicked. He's talking about the Pharisees and he's giving the parable to say who's going to get the fire rain down on them and not. Like, spiritual pride is not 
It's what gets fire rain down on you. And I'm reading this in the coffee shop this morning, and there's two guys next to me just railing on the church saying, man, the church in America is so jacked up. They don't fast. They don't pray. They don't have a clue what's going on. And I'm sitting there just going, bro, you don't even have any idea what you're doing. I mean, it's just like, it was a, it was a uh, horrifying, I just sat there going, I don't, I don't know what to do in this moment, God, or how to, it was not funny. So Luke 7, when a, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She sits behind him at his feet, weeping, putting her tears on his feet and then breaking the, and wiping with her hair, breaking the oil on it. And the Pharisee says if he's a prophet, he would know who's at his feet. And, uh, and he says, he turns towards the woman and says, and says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me, uh, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet her, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Because he tells the parable right before that. She comes in and she's weeping, covering his feet. And he tells a parable and says, Simon, let me tell you a parable. There's two guys. One has a debt of 50 denarii, the other 500. The master cancels both debts. Who's the one who will love him more? And Simon says, the one who's debt is greater canceled and then he looks at the woman and says you see this woman (laughs) you know i mean people don't go into prostitution because they just love having sex with guys that's almost never the reason why women go into prostitution almost never and so the reason they do that generally is because of the hardship of their lives and the suffering that goes into it And the reason she's being honored in the situation is because the suffering of her life has driven her to dependence on God and recognition recognition of Jesus. And the suffering in Simon's life, and she's had great debt that's canceled, the suffering in Simon's life has not driven him to that point because all human beings suffer. I mean, that's just, we're all under the same uh, returning to the ground bit. And so it's... And so you get like these three, I just picked three passages that really typify the movement of a man like Simon the Pharisee to the, the sinful woman in Paul's life. And likewise, the movement from Luke 18, the, tax, the, the Pharisee that's going to get thrown into a lake of fire and the tax collector that's going to get raised from the dead in glory in the temple. Because that's why he's in the temple praying because he believes the glory in the temple is a down payment of the glory that will cover the earth. And so he's, and so Paul has the same progression between the two. Philippians 3, if anyone else has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, confidence for what? That he'll transform our bodies into his glory, like his glorious body. I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, and guarded the law of Pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And then in Acts 19, the Lord appears to him, blinds him, and then the Lord appears to Ananias and says, there's coming a guy named Saul, and you're going to pray for him. He's going to receive a sight. And Ananias says, I know this guy. He does a lot of damage. And what's the Lord say? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so you get, uh, wherever it is, 2 Corinthians uh, 11, where he lays out all of his beatings and sufferings. I mean, it's not, it, it was a portion to him in the kindness of the Lord as he would accept it. He didn't have to accept it, did he? I mean, Paul knew the life of a well-taken-care-of Pharisee. I mean, he didn't have to accept the sufferings of God saying yes to the Holy Spirit. But he understood how God treats human beings that he loves in this age. And so he heard the voice of the Lord 
saying to him in every city you enter, accept the suffering that you're going to endure. Because it's going to end in 1 Timothy 1, that Jesus Christ, he said, here's a, here's a, uh, a trustworthy saying, uh, deserves full acceptance, acceptance. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason I've shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So you just get that movement from the Pharisee of Pharisees to the worst of sinners in light of him saying yes to God showing him how much he must suffer. Because it's just not, we just don't enter into it without the Lord's leadership through trial and tribulation. Page 8, the humbling of humanity under repentance is the basic reason for the allowance of death and suffering in this age. God allows humanity to suffer painful toil unto returning to the dust in hopes that they would repent and be saved from perfect retribution at the day of the Lord. So we've talked about this a little bit, Genesis 3, until you return to the dust. Romans 8, this is where Paul is pulling his basic theology uh, as a whole for the redemption of the body. I don't consider the sufferings of this present time worth being compared to the glory that's revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, who subjected it. Why? In hopes for the resurrection. And so this is Paul's commentary on Genesis 3, that God curses not humanity. What's God curse? He curses the ground as discipline on humanity that man would return to the ground and so i mean it's just we like we see death and suffering in such a wrong light you know i mean it doesn't negate god healing people but god healing people has to be seen in light of god's the one who said return to the dirt and he may heal us but the only reason for the healing is a testimony to the day of the lord that God will raise us out of the dirt. Because the dirt was subjected to suffering and futility, not of its own will, but in hopes that because of it being subjected to a curse, that, hu- that sons of Adam would repent and be brought out of the dirt. I mean, it's just like... I mean, it's so simple, yet profound, and... When you don't have a theology based on Genesis, you kick against the goads. Not, not that you don't seek God to display signs of the resurrection, but you sure don't develop a theology that says death is of the devil and suffering and sickness is just all of the devil and God never institutes death. I mean, that is disaster. It completely it completely turns the, old, the whole plan of salvation upside down and makes it so that people can't believe in the resurrection. You know what I'm saying? It's like you have to have a sound foundation that God instituted death and returning the sons of Adam to the ground and everything that that involves and that in his mercy he might raise you up from sickness and death. Even if you return to the ground, he might raise you up in this age. But it has to be completely in light that that in and of itself is a loving act of God to make human beings repent and that the ground is longing and that we too groan and cry out with the ground. Why? Because we have a deposit of the resurrection in us longing that we would be revealed out of the ground. Isaiah 26, when the earth gives birth to her bodies. I mean, come on. That's just solid. John Piper's about the only guy who says things likewise. I love that guy. I spent like four hours yesterday in the coffee shop listening to John Piper just going, oh, let it wash me in truth and revelation. So now that I completely endorse, you know, whatever, there's all kinds of issues, but the man is a faithful witness Luke 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
And Jesus tells them this parable. Um, And he tells them the parable of the sheep that's lost, the coin that's lost, and then the younger son. And so the whole point of all three of them is who does the saving? You know what I'm saying? Like who establishes righteousness unto salvation and the resurrection? And his whole point is that you've got the whole thing completely upside down and you are not going to be found on the day of the Lord and you are not going to be raised from the dead and the host of heaven is not going to rejoice over you. I mean, it's so intense in light of who he's saying the parable to. And so he says the parable of the, of the two sons and the younger son who demands his inheritance now and seeks his reward now. If you're like the Pharisees, and you pray, and you fast, and you give to the poor, so that you'll be honored by other people, so that you'll bolster up your own spiritual pride, you can be guaranteed you'll have received your reward now, like the younger son, and you'll be thrown into a lake of fire. But God says, this is, what, this is why God makes famine happen on the earth, so that, why? We'll come to our senses will come out of the delusion and come to our senses and repent as in the dust that God is the one who's going to cancel our sins and he's so nice to us in doing it. And there's no other way forward. And so uh, Psalm 73, I'll let you guys, Psalm 73, Psalm 90, I think I've read them to you before, but the arrogant, the reason they're arrogant is they have no troubles common to man. Uh, page five. Well, that's odd. I'm so confused. But why? It automatically counts. There's another page eight. And it's in the right order. That is strange. I remember saying page eight and going, man, we're moving through these notes. <laughs> Not. All right. So thus trials and sufferings are indispensable weapons in God's arsenal in the war against the pride of man. <laughs> and this is, I mean, <laughs> like you said, Brian, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, just... On the front end, he is a loving father, but he understands how we actually are deep down. You know what I mean? Like, And he's a loving father, and he knows there's a war going on. And it's called the pride of human beings in our own heart. And he's really, he, he's really into destroying that thing. And so uh, he's a father with a gun pointed at our heads in a very loving way. So tribulations bring wickedness and darkness to the forefront, which demand a response of repentance on our part. Afterwards, we we experience liberty and maturity in our inner man, sanctification and holiness that will be revealed on the day of the Lord in the kingdom. And so James 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish this work so you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Why? Because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life because of his righteousness. Romans 5, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we also have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Through him we also obtain access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So by our faith we receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit, standing in it, assured of it, rejoicing in the glory of God, which we'll, which we'll enter into. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings in this age, provided we will be heirs and co-heirs and share in His glory, provided we share in His sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he's given to us as a deposit. First Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while is necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. 
So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. We'll skip Jezebel because that's just intense. Okay, so I want to do a a little John Piper. Nah, keep it going. We'll leave it on. Can you hit the lights? I love John Piper. It's only a couple minutes, but it's so in your face. It's just a little, uh, give it to me. Why? Why would you do such a thing? Aha. So somebody put a little video to it. It's kind of dorky, but whatever. gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it, hatred. It is not the gospel. It's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message, your pigs won't die, your wife won't have miscarriages, you have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. The people that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives. Instead, selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. And here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW. Never. They'll say, Jesus can do that? Yeah. Well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful is when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands like dead on the street and you say through the deepest possible pain God is enough God is enough He is good He will take care of us He will satisfy us He will get us through this He is our treasure whom have I in heaven but you and on earth there's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look. As God, not as giver of cars or safety or health. Oh, how I pray that America would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity God, and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ's God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him in the midst of loss. Not Is that not intense? But there's, it's, uh, I mean, obviously the reason there's uh, kind of pullback from that and people sometimes have a hard time with John is, because there's the, you know, the response has to be, the context of suffering has to be the resurrection. My little daughter goes through the windshield and hits the ground. And my declaration is that God is enough. He will satisfy when he raises her up from the ground. And he establishes righteousness on the earth and, and uh, vindicates the righteous. And so... Because of No. It's just unfair and horrible and right. it's just suffering, 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 and it's never made right. Yeah. But with the resurrection, the little girl dying is actually made right. Yeah. It actually answers the yeah the problem of the suffering. Suffering of the resurrection is no longer the patient who endures the suffering. Uh-uh. But there's just that, you know, the logical outcome of... 
the dominionistic theology has to be all the prophecies about the righteous receiving the wealth of the nations, the righteous being redeemed, the righteous being raised up, the righteous and the wicked being cast down, etc. And so kingdom now has to include those things. And when those things don't line up with reality, it creates disillusionment and it gets exported from the most prosperous nation on the earth to all the non-prosperous nations on the earth. And it causes delusion in our nation, but think about the delusion it creates in other nations. Or I mean the disillusionment is what I, what I mean to say. I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's disaster. So, uh, trials and tribulation establish love. I want to hit a few of these. And I want to watch another, uh, another John Piper bit on uh, suffering. Because not only do you have, like the heavens and the earth, God ruling in the height of the heavens over humanity, we're looking forward to the day of the Lord when he restores the earth by the Son of Man who sits on the throne. And between now and then, he's restraining from wickedness. And so the point of trials and tribulations, the point really is not only that he rules all-powerful, Pantocrator, Lord God Almighty, all-powerful, and therefore when trials and tribulations happen, it humiliates us. That's the idea. It creates humility. Of course, the wicked, it doesn't create humility. What does it create? create? Bitterness and rage against God. But the righteous understand that God will redeem creation. And even in the trials and tribulations like Job, what do they say? God is good and he's, we accept good and evil from his hand because we know that he has power over everything and it creates humility and repentance in us. Not only that, but what are the two characteristics of government? Remember, pull, pull back up your mechanics of government. Power and love. Power and love. These are the things that vindicate a governor. And so trials and tribulations are designed to vindicate power, God's power, and create humility in us. But also, it communicates His love as He entered into trials and tribulation in the cross and, uh, and creates revelation of our loved-ness. Power, humility, love, loved. Nice diagram. Come on. So, page six, not only do trials and tribulations establish, establish humility uh, in preparation for the age to come, they also witness to the world God's unconditional love in this age. As God has been rejected, persecuted, hated in this age, yet relentlessly responding in love and long-suffering, so also is the church established in the love of God by enduring suffering and persecution for the gospel, which will culminate at the end of the age. And so God promises to be with us, to walk with us and be with us in the midst of the trial and tribulation, which means He experiences it too. And it communicates to us how much He loves us and uh, even suffering unto our salvation. John 15, These things I command you so you'll love one another. If the world hates you and knows that, and know that it hates know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were in the world, if you were of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not above his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. But the, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, well, that's a strange thing to say. They hated me without cause, but when the helper comes, in response to what? To being hated without cause, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. You'll bear witness about me that they've hated me without cause. They've hated me without cause, yet I've restrained from destroying them. 
They've built towers to the heavens to rule over the whole earth and dominate men so that men won't serve me, but they'll serve them. They've hated me, and yet I've restrained in kindness towards them. And the Holy Spirit will bear witness to me and to the Father, and you also will bear witness to me and to the Father, and they'll hate and persecute you. Because you have been with me from the beginning. I said these things to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. The hour is coming when they think they'll do service to God by persecuting. They'll do this because they have not known the Father nor me. And so suffering and persecution, because suffering isn't just at the hands of men. We'll get there in a second. Uh, So uh, we kind of covered this. We're out of time. So flip over to page 7. That God himself suffered unto martyrdom and, uh, and likewise, uh, likewise as, as Stephen in Acts 7, he is receiving revelation of the love of God as he's being persecuted unto death, saying the same thing. And so as Paul is being told by God in every city that you enter into, you, what awaits you is suffering and trial and persecution, and as he walks through it, he receives revelation of the love of God, of how God loved him when he was just like them, and how he therefore loves them in the same way. And so there's the humiliation and the love of God imparted into the human heart. They'll deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my sake. And then Many will fall away and betray each other and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Scary. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. And so as the tribulations escalate at the end of the age, many false prophets will appear and they will not interpret it rightly. They will not say this is the loving kindness of God to turn wicked human beings back to him and bring them to repentance and they're persecuting and they hate God, many false prophets will say the exact opposite thing and lead many away from interpreting it as the love of God and therefore leading others into the revelation of the love of God in the midst of trial and tribulation. But at that time, there will be a witness to the whole earth. Um, Page 7 Uh, this is how God relates to us. Point two, the church is the head, is the body of the head, who is uh, Jesus ruling in the heavens. As the head's ruling, so ought the church be proclaiming. As the head loved unconditionally, so ought the church model that love to the world. God is merciful to the wicked, so ought the church proclaim and walk in mercy. And so, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, do good to those. Uh, Uh, Bless those who curse you for those who mistreat you. If you love only those who love you, what credit will be to even sinners love those who love them? But love your enemies, then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the resurrection. Because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And uh, in, in the Matthew version, it says, Be perfect, therefore is your heavenly Father's perfect. Um. B, the church is thus called to imitate the apostolic witness, which itself imitated God incarnate in the Messiah, page 8. 1 Corinthians 4, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. To the world, to angels, and to men. Three people. The world, the angels, and to men. And I think he's, well, the righteous men and and unrighteous men. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise. And the men, I think he's talking to the Corinthians in light of there's there's false apostles. And the point is the false apostles are not, they do not listen to their father and will not accept the leadership because who takes, who may, who exhibits the apostles as last of all? The Father's the one who speaks to them and leads them into danger on every side. The Father's the one that exhibits them in the midst of suffering, but the false apostles don't listen to the voice of the Father, and they exploit 
the people and use them for their own gain, just like Jeremiah 23. And so, uh, anyway, move on. We're weak, but you're strong. We're, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. In the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. That's so intense by those that call themselves apostles and are not. It's so intense. We have become and still are like the scum of the world and refuse all uh, and the refuse of all things. I do not write these to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have any fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus. I urge you to be imitators of me. And so see, likewise, uh, uh, he says, this is the point of filling up the afflictions uh, in his flesh, what's lacking in regarding to Christ's afflictions, and so again, it's not—it's not that there's adding to the atonement, like John Piper says, but that you fill up and you represent what happened in the afflictions of Christ to the world, and the long suffering and love of God to wicked humanity. So D, this is the one that was that uh, just blows my mind because I'm starting to come to grips with this more and more that it's really more about this than men it's really more about the powers in the heavens than the powers on the earth d not only do we endure suffering at the hands of men like he like paul says in first corinthians 4 i think god has exhibited us as apostles as last of all sent like men sentenced to death because referring referencing jesus because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels so not only do we endure suffering at the hands of wicked men we endure suffering at the hands of wicked powers in the heavens because a lot of times it's the powers that drive men and we get afflicted just by the powers themselves And uh, we witness to all in the heavens and on the earth that God is long-suffering and kind. However, he will punish all who use their power wickedly and pervert their power. And so this is the point of Isaiah 24. He'll punish the powers in the heavens and on the earth, the kings on the earth below, the powers in the heavens and the kings on the earth below. Like Jude says, the angels that didn't keep their position, some of them he allowed to continue. Many of them he shut up in the abyss to be kept for judgment. Because why? Because they did not stay within their position of authority. They perverted the power given to them for their own honor and glory. And so like Job, you have, and Job really is the thorn in the side of dominionism. You'll never, you'll never hear anybody talk about it because it cannot be explained. And yet it's one of Piper's favorite subjects. I'm just, I'm in love with that guy right now. Not to idol, whatever I, I idolize. I just, I love it when a man stands up for truth and righteousness. And he really does have a heart to exalt and honor the sovereignty of God and the power of God over creation. Even though there's some aspects missing and the love and context to the resurrection, God so loved us that he gave his only son that we would have everlasting life in the resurrection. Since there's not that component, some of the love falls out of place and it's not, but just the heart of that man. Okay, move on. So Job, then his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God and die? But he said to her, you speak as, as one of the foolish women. The Hebrew word is, means a, basically a prostitute. As a foolish woman would speak, shall we receive good from God? I mean, you just, until you're married for about 10 years, you can't imagine the impact of calling your wife that. In the context of the amount of suffering and all your kids dying and big boils all over you and all everything you work so hard for being lost in such a short period of time and your wife is accusing you, the, the words of Satan coming out of her mouth, and you don't give to it, and you tell your wife. I mean, that's just, dude, that's intense. <laughs> I don't think I could stand up to Lydia. <laughs> Seriously. Because you become familiar with each other, and she knows all your weakness. So, 
you speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil as kindness from the Lord? Because we really don't know all the variables going on. We don't know all the factors. There's so many more larger things going on in our life and on the earth than we even understand. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And when they, Job's friends, saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. Why do you do that? (laughs) Because men are bound to return to the dust. And so this is what you do toward heaven to represent, I understand what's going on here. So they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. So Ephesians 3, this is Paul's, uh, this is Paul's point when he's talking about the riches and kindness of God, when he's going to bring all things, all powers, principalities in the heavens and on the earth under the headship of Christ. We have been sealed for our inheritance in that, He moves into chapter 2 and says, You Gentiles, the kindness of God, have been included in that inheritance by the blood of Christ. And so chapter 3, although he talks about, Therefore I have been made a minister to the Gentiles, although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches being our being included in the resurrection by the blood of Christ. And the cross, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Because the mystery is the bringing together all things under the headship of Christ and the inclusion of the Gentiles in his kindness in administrating that the Christ had to suffer before entering into his glory. So that's all he's saying is the Christ had to suffer before entering into his glory. And how nice is God to include you Gentiles into that? He says, because he administrates things well. And he's not only the God of the Jews, but the Gentiles. And he's going to have mercy on the Jews and Gentiles together. And everybody is going to declare that he's amazing. For his intent was now, okay, okay. so his administration of the mystery, which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through him, and in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence that we're going to be raised from the dead in glory because of the blood of Christ. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. What? Like, where did that come from? His point is, is that now in the church, persecuted by the powers in the heavens and the kings on the earth, we are making known not only to the kings of the earth that God is long-suffering towards you and he will throw you into a lake of fire if you don't repent, but we make known the same administration and kindness of God to the powers in the heavens. And we endure suffering underneath their wicked... uh, tyranny and like the what i always think of there's this guy he was an old man in the methodist church that i went to after i came it's so impacted and marked me it was nuts i brought him up here back in 2000 and uh, gary weens prayed for him and he he all of a sudden in the middle of the night i mean consistently almost every week he would tell me about the Lord was waiting. And this is a very wealthy businessman, like drove real, you know, brand new Lexus SUV, very wealthy. And the Lord was waking him up in the middle of the night. And he said it was just like glory on him, the love of God and mercy on his life. And the Lord calling him and saying, I've raised you up. I've given you this to take my gospel to the nations. And he was just funding all these missions things happening in the church. And he was like coming up with this whole plan to just raise up businesses and models to just pour millions of dollars into the missions movement. And boom, he comes down with cancer. And I took him up to Kansas City here. Gary Weens prayed for him. And we were just believing God was going to heal him. And he died. And it was just like shocking. Like it just sent me reeling. 
But it was like, it marked me that we don't just endure suffering and persecution from wicked men. We endure suffering and persecution from powers in the heavens. And in our faith and belief and declaration that God is enough, that he satisfies us, that he will endure us, and that he will vindicate us in the end. And with my own eyes, I'll see God. We make a declaration to the powers in the heavens that that persecute us of the loving kindness of God towards them. How crazy is that? And so in Ephesians 6, he says, now get the context of this. Ephesians, he moves from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4. Therefore, he's established the body with common faith, Jew and Gentile. He's given gifts to the body to raise up the body and love and faith and righteousness into maturity. Therefore, walk in that maturity. Don't be like the Gentiles, the end of chapter 4, because they won't inherit the kingdom of God. They'll be thrown in a lake of fire, chapter 5. Therefore, as he encourages the whole church to walk in humility and love, he encourages husbands and wives to do it in chapter 5. And then he moves into chapter 6 for, for, for parents and kids to do it. And then he moves in right here in chapter 6 to slaves and masters. Almost the most intensely unjust relationship on the earth. And he encourages humility and love and says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he's done, whether he's slave or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Obviously, he's talking to believing masters. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Finally... Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord about what? About your master in heaven who will reward each according to what he's done. Be strong in your faith in the day of the Lord. And in his mighty power to raise from the dead, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's wicked schemes. Take your stand how? in enduring and love and patience and forgiveness and kindness in a long-suffering witness of the love of God in your own midst, in the midst of husband and wife, in the midst of children and parents, even in the midst of masters and slaves, do not succumb to bitterness and unforgiveness, but give vengeance to the Lord, entrusting vengeance to the day of the Lord, and stand your ground against the scheme of the enemy that would have you be thrown into a lake of fire. Because our struggle, put on the full armor of God, take your stands, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against wicked masters, wicked parents, wicked husbands, wicked human beings, the whole context he's moving in. Our struggle against, is against powers and principalities that we suffer under, along with the men that they that they impassion and emboldened against rulers against authorities against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms therefore put on the full armor of god so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground as a witness to the day of the lord in faith and righteousness after you've done everything to stand so christonaturalistic dominionism is fundamentally contrary in light of this not only to undermining the absolute sovereignty of God, but robbing the church of its witness of God's benevolence, kindness, and long-suffering in the midst of human rebellion. It provides no impetus for a long-suffering amnestic witness. It provides no emphasis on the demonstration of the love of Christ on the cross. It provides no motivation to compel us to a ministry of reconciliation. And so like 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ on the day of the Lord, that each one may receive what's due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. So, now, so from now we regard no one as a worldly point of view as we once regard Christ in this way because whatever and this is from god who reconciled us to himself through christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that god was reconciling the world to himself in christ not counting men's sins against them 
in context to the judgment seat. He's, he's committed to us the me- message of reconciliation, and we're his ambassadors. All right. Lord, we love you. We're just so grateful to you, Father. We're so grateful to you that even in the midst of all of our suffering and trial, that you are sovereign, you have all power over it, and we welcome it. Like Job did, we accept the good and we accept the evil. We accept the north winds and the south winds, Father, in our life. We rejoice in them. And we set our hope fully on the day when you will vindicate us. And we ask you for mercy that you would make us ministers of reconciliation, that you would fill us with the love of God, that we really would love people like you love them, not just people who love us, but the wicked who don't love us, God. That you would make us strong and bold in our faith, that you would clothe us with the armor of God and righteousness, and humility with the knowledge of salvation, God. We love you in Jesus' name.